Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Pasord and I'm a psychiatrist based in London. Today I'm talking to Paul Coombe, who's a psychiatrist and individual and group psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice in Melbourne, Australia. He was formerly consultant child psychiatrist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. He was the overseas senior registrar in psychotherapy at the Castle Hospital, London, from 1990 to 1993. For those who might not know, the Castle is a famous hospital which could possibly be described as pioneering inpatient psychotherapy in the British NHS. Paul is the immediate past president of the Australian Association of Group Psychotherapists and member of the Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Association of Australia. The reason we're talking to Paul is that this year marks the 450th anniversary of the birth of William Shakespeare. Indeed, his birthday was just a few days ago. And Paul has recently published an academic paper entitled William Shakespeare as Psychotherapy. And it was published in the prestigious academic journal, the International Journal of Applied Psychoanalytic Studies. So, Paul, let's start um, by discussing how it was that you got interested in Shakespeare and this and this idea of Shakespeare as a psychotherapist. Thank you Raj for this opportunity. Look I suppose that my interests in Shakespeare go back a very long time. Uh, in the first instance as a uh, high, school st high school student at a uh, government school in Australia, like many of us I suppose we would have studied uh, some Shakespeare and I can recall Macbeth and many of us had an ambivalent attitude including myself to the works but I can still remember, you know, some of the, the, the quotes, the, the witches uh, around the cauldron, uh, Lady Macbeth, out damned spot, and these sorts of things stay in a young fellow's mind through life. And then through the course of uh, psychiatry, child psychiatry training, one comes across a lot of suffering and, uh, and, and, and misery and, and great difficulties in life. And then uh, I, I had the uh, opportunity to... Uh, uh, go to the Castle Hospital and, and again uh, encounter the, uh, the, the struggles that many people have. But the, uh, the real opportunity there was that we have the chance to delve deeply into people's psyche. And I think along with that was the opportunity to do uh, group and psychoanalytic psychotherapy training uh, and my own personal analytic experiences. And these gave me, I think, quite a, a solid foundation. Uh, and out of that sprung this interest in Shakespeare. And I also have to give credit to my wife, who is a, an English literature teacher, has been for many years. So there you are. That's some of the background, Raj. Now, you start off your paper by commenting on the fact that Shakespeare wrote at a time of great turmoil. It was quite a troubled period. Um, uh, the UK history um, and there were all sorts of things going on including the plague at that time and you venture the idea that given Shakespeare's audiences would have been troubled and stressed there was a sense in which his plays tried to deal with that stress and suffering. Oh yes I think so uh, but I do want to add at this time that I think life is difficult <laughs> it may be unpopular to say that but I think that there were particular matters uh, playing out on the then English public uh, that were just very, very difficult. Uh, you had the plague, 
you had the constant threat of war, you had the succession difficulties with Elizabeth I, the plague, infection, uh, neonatal death rates, uh, it just goes on and on. And of course, Shakespeare, born in 1564, born, he came into the world at a very, very special time. I've also neglected to mention uh, Henry VIII's uh, reign and uh, the uh, disbanding of monasteries and, and the great uh, reformation that had a profound effect upon the public. Now, this isn't just my opinion. This is the opinion of uh, historians who, who uh, have had the time to study this in depth. So he comes into the world at this special time. You've got the printing press being invented by Gutenberg, 1455. Caxton introduces it into uh, uh, England in the 1470s. The time was ripe uh, for someone who had a, a, a special skill, even a genius, one would have to say, for uh, uh, expressing the struggles of the human, of a person. And there it is. So there was something about the fact that the audience uh, was gripped by anxiety because they were living at very uncertain times, and you're arguing that Shakespeare had a the content of the plays had a way of dealing with anxiety. Well, I think that's right. Yes, um, yes, you state that people were anxious then, and, and that's my suggestion. But uh, I, I think that anxiety and difficulties in life, as I've already said, uh, are there. At, at any uh, stage of uh, human history. But uh, he, uh, with serendipity, arrived uh, at that time and uh, it was fortuitous for many. People were drawn to these plays uh, almost magnetically. There were 3,000 people would attend the Globe Theatre productions and uh, it, it was great entertainment. You couldn't imagine a, a, a bigger audience in, in London at the time. Of course we have Wembley and everything else these days but certainly uh, it was an opportunity for people to see played out in front of them and listen to uh, and, and become powerfully involved in dramas that struck them in a very very special way. And one of the um, arguments you mount is that modern-day entertainments provide a kind of escape from the stresses and the suffering of everyday life. But Shakespeare did more than offer an escape. He, he actually was helping people address some of their inner turmoil. So he was, he was offering more than just simple escapism. Oh, that's right, yes. Uh, I mean, many of the plays uh, were dealing with... Uh, if you take the history plays, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Sixth, Richard the Second, Richard the Third, and so on, Henry the Fifth, they're dealing with matters that were in the past for the English public, but they're also focusing on matters of succession and the great trials and anxieties that I expect would have been generated in the public at that time. Now, it was not possible for Shakespeare or for anyone to comment publicly about what was going on. That would, uh, one would be threatened with death. So it, I don't say that this was his conscious intent, but it enabled the public to experience vicariously their worries and anxieties played out in front of them on the stage. I think the, the, the difference with uh, modern entertainment, yes, it's very entertaining, it, it, it's powerful in its own way, but 
it's, it's often rather narrow and focused, whereas the plays, especially Shakespeare's plays, if you enter into them, you can encounter uh, in the oeuvre of Shakespeare the full complexity of life's challenges. And I think that's where, he, uh, you know, there's a great advantage in, in being able to study and enter into these sorts of works. You also mount an argument that, that, that's been voiced before by a couple of very eminent um, professors of literature that there's a sense in which Shakespeare invents the modern human. Um, could you say a bit more about that? Yes, look Raj, obviously you're talking about uh, uh, Harold Bloom uh, who wrote a book published in uh, 2000, uh, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. Now, I mean, when I first encountered this title, when I first read the book, and it's a, it's a mighty tome, I, I thought to myself, well, that's really stretching things, isn't it? But, you know, as you read the book, as you enter into it, I really considered and now believe that there is something in it. Now, of course, there's the uh, Frank Commode, K-E-R-M-O-D-E, in Britain. He wrote a book published almost exactly the same time, Shakespeare's language. Now he really evokes the same sort of idea that uh, he doesn't use the terminology of Bloom but something very very special was happening with the creation of Hamlet the Prince of Denmark and really it's about exposing and sharing with the world the inner workings of a person. Now prior to Shakespeare this wasn't the case. Uh, many of the writings that were available to the public, for example, were uh, seated in religious themes um, and the public were drawn to them. There's no doubt about that. Miracle plays, as they were called, or mystery plays, used to tour the country and had done for a, a long time before. But though there was a, there's a certain sort of, well, I believe anyway, a limitation that goes with sort of religious plays. And here uh, we have someone who's able to create uh, characters such as Hamlet where you, you hear him talking to himself, discussing the profound agonies of, of life. And uh, I, I think there was something new about this. And then he produces this, this marvellous uh, reservoir of creative and poetic works, which then disseminate throughout the, uh, the English-speaking world and beyond that. Many uh, poets and writers uh, of other nations have been stimulated by Shakespeare's works. Goethe, Alexander Pushkin, and so on. And it became a stimulus for uh, artistic works well, well beyond Shakespeare's times. Uh, he, he could not possibly have imagined the effect that his creative talent would have thereafter. And as an example, Raj, if I may, there's a, in terms of the stimulus to artistic works that followed, I'll give you one example. In the Tate Britain uh, Museum, Art Gallery, there's a wonderful painting by John Everett Millay, one of the pre-Raphaelites. Now it's a painting of Ophelia from the play Hamlet. And it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliantly colourful and luminous painting and evoked in that is the, the suffering of this young woman who, in despair, suicides by drowning in, the, in a stream. But it's full of symbolism. The, the sorts of flowers that are, that are in the, the, the picture 
represent uh, pain, forsaken love. Uh, the poppy is a symbol of death, and she's holding a poppy. These sorts of this sort of fertilisation throughout the the artistic world it continues to uh, to reverberate, and in many cases people have no knowledge of the origins of it. Many many of the sayings that are in the English language now that uh, we take for granted. I might just mention one or two: uh, eaten out of house and home. All's well that ends well. Uh, too much of a good thing. A heart of gold. Puking. I mean, they're, they're really endless. And as I say, most people would have no idea that these uh, originated in, in Shakespeare's works. So the very thing that many people find <laughs> difficult to um, get about Shakespeare, um, which are the, the sort of long monologues, are, I think you're arguing, a kind of strength of Shakespeare, which is you get characters thinking about themselves, thinking about their own motivation, contemplating themselves, and that's the beginning of the modern autonomous human being and kind of paves the way for psychotherapy several centuries later. Oh yes, I think uh, it. I think it. Uh, it paves the way for psychotherapy. I think it paves the way, surprisingly to me, for the development of the human. We owe him a great, great service in terms of psychotherapy. Yes, I mean obviously there was no formal therapy. Uh, perhaps individuals had their own. Obviously they had their own relationships. They may have had a relationship with the pastor or the the uh, the vicar or. or whoever it was, the wise person of the time. But look, nothing uh, of the, the, the nature of uh, what we now know as, as, as modern psychotherapy, especially uh, a type of psychotherapy that involves an understanding of depth psychology, as we tend to call it. But you were also arguing that part of the appeal of Shakespeare is the fact that he may access the unconscious or um, uh, address the unconscious at some level. That explains the perennial interest in his work. Oh, yes, I think so. I think many of the characters, many of the plays, are not just stories presented in a wonderfully poetic fashion, which they are, undoubtedly, but uh, he had this knack of being able to touch on uh, the reservoirs of the unconscious. Now, obviously, he had no... I don't... Uh, say for a moment that this was his aim, but in retrospect, as we look at the works, that's clearly the case. It's it, there are many technical issues in this, in terms of a psychoanalytic perspective. But I can just mention some to give you some interest, uh, to to enhance interest. Uh, Othello, you know, Othello, driven, stimulated by Iago, Othello kills Desdemona, Desdemona, the love of his life. And really what was going on was Iago was driven by envy. Now, envy is one of those influences that operates in us all. It is not just the prerogative, the, uh, the occupant of some more uh, disturbed individuals, although it does make itself known in, in, in particularly dis disturbed people more so. But here we have it played out. Jealousy, envy. Now, these are the sorts of experiences that many of us uh, we don't want to know about. We find it hard to examine. We, f we find it hard to accept something like that residing in ourselves. And there it is, played out. Um, look at uh, 
Hamlet. Hamlet, he uh, is, is, is driven through the play uh, rather reluctantly to seek revenge against Claudius, his uncle, who is, has killed his father and then marries his mother. Uh, there's something about the, the, the deep unconscious issues that we all struggle with in our own family of origin. Now, it may be unpopular to say some of these things these days, but uh, in terms of a psychoanalytic approach, sometimes being um, dismissed. But the play was dealing with the so-called family romance, uh, the triangle of love and suffering for a child, that every child has to work their own way through. This is, this is considered to be perhaps the greatest play ever written. I have to say, arguably, of course, but all of the plays, especially the tragedies, especially the tragedies, are touching on very, very deep wells in, in us all, if we can only allow ourselves to access them. That is really what I'm trying to say. Okay, we're running out of time a little bit, but I just want to have a quick conversation about um, the idea that Shakespeare wasn't just a psychotherapist, but possibly a neuroscientist. So there's been a recent paper published in the academic journal called Cortex, the title of which is How Shakespeare Tempests the Brain, Neuroimaging Insights. And it's published by James Kaidel, Philip Davis, Victoria Gonzalez-Diaz, Clara Martin, and Guilherme Thierry, who are at the School of Psychology, Bangor University, Liverpool Moore University, Liverpool University, and Pompo Fabra University in Barcelona, Spain. And this was a brain imaging study looking at um, people sitting in a brain scanner and looking at brain activity um, in response to um, uh, them encountering some of Shakespeare's um, phrases. So they're arguing that one of Shakespeare's techniques was to use a, 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 a technique called functional shift. And this is where um, a word is used in an unexpected fashion. For instance, uh, when describing the invented affair between Cassio and Desdemona to Othello, Iago <coughs> states, Oh, tis the spite of hell to lip a wanton in a secure couch and to suppose her chaste. These lines contain, the authors argue, two examples of a functional shift. The use of the word, uh, use of the noun lip as a verb meaning to kiss or copulate, and the use of the adjective wanton as a noun to represent Desdemona. And these authors are arguing that this use of this, this technique, literary technique called functional shift, causes much wider uh, brain stimulation throughout the brain than if uh, the phrase had been using words in a more expected manner. So I'm just wondering what your reaction is to this neuroscience research that William Shakespeare, several hundred years ahead of his time, seemed almost to be aware of, of the neuroscience impact of um, his literary style on his audience. Yes, Raj, look, I'm, I'm uh, aware of this, uh, this, this article um, and the matter of functional shift when an existing word takes on a different grammatical function. And the example that often comes to my mind is the use of the word husband, which often we think of as a noun, but it, it also can be used as, as a verb. Now, I think that there's something in what they're saying, but I would not emphasise so much the biological myself. 
if, if you look at the, the quotation from uh, Othello, as, as you quoted, oh, tis the spite of hell to live a wanton in a secure couch and to suppose her chaste. You know, I think there are allusions there, obviously, to sexuality, but in particular the forbidden but at the same time desired passions that we are all aware of in ourselves. So what I'm suggesting is, I, I, I've no doubt that the, 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 the literature, the literary function of functional shift would challenge the brain and our mind, but I'm thinking also that there's something going on at a deeply unconscious level at the same time. That that's I don't think that that's being um, investigated or touched on by the writers. Not meaning to be critical at all. That's not their intent. I think it's it's interesting. It's another example of how the the, the physical, the organic, the the, the neuroscience is is informing us more and more. Uh, it's not a case, of course, of one being more important than the other. They must work together. I mean, this whole area of so-called neuropsychoanalysis, which is, is taking off globally, is, is an example of the same. So that's where I would place my emphasis, given my interests, of course, on uh, what is buried, deeply hidden, even unable to be ordinarily acknowledged in our daily lives. That's what Shakespeare could touch on and of course it will stir up. Anything that is released from the depths of us and uh, released from repression is the word, often ultimately gives a sense of relief, release of something that has been imprisoned with us. And I think that's, that's the, the great gift of Shakespeare's works. But most of us, who take any pleasure or satisfaction in, in being aware of Shakespeare's contribution remain unaware of why it's so profound for us all. I mean, I think that uh, uh, great literature and poetry has the capacity to touch us deeply, not just emotionally but psychologically. This is where I think the neuroscience research you have mentioned in relation to functional shift comes in. I suspect that the cortical activity referred to is a result of deep resonance within our psyche, even our unconscious. So one, one final question, because we're running out of time. I mean, <coughs> questions really. As psychiatry becomes more biological, do you think we're missing something in the contribution of the arts and fiction? And does a psychoanalytic view, as opposed to a biological view, lend itself more easily to embracing the arts in treatment? Oh yes, I think that psychiatry, uh, uh, from my understanding globally, is moving more uh, in the direction of the biological. No doubt about that. Through my career, I've observed it. Uh, I, I can see it as important. I can see it as necessary. But I see also that there's a great loss at the same time. Um, yes, certainly we're missing something in the contribution of the arts and fiction in pursuing such a direction. And I know psychiatrists and young psychiatrists are being trained and encouraged to to run teams and to uh, to supervise this, that and the other. Um, I, I just hope that as many as possible don't lose touch with the importance of the arts. Look, an analytic approach at its heart is about listening, it's about understanding and finding meaning. Now, the arts are, are well placed and in particular Shakespearean works and everything that has come from it. We haven't had the time today to really go into it uh, completely, but 
perhaps we've just whetted some appetites out there. Well, Paul Coombe, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us, and uh, thank you very much indeed for deepening our understanding of Shakespeare um, on his 450th anniversary. Thank you. Thank you, Raj.